Bye, bye, Whippy. <laughs> I have to do bye, that's the thing that makes him come. Bye, bye, Whippy. It's not working. <laughs> it's he's like, you know what, I'll take my chances, Dad. <laughs> I don't believe he's going anywhere. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I went for a socially distanced two-person stroll with broadcaster and TV presenter Evan Davis. We were also joined by his fabulously named Whippet, Mr Whippy. Evan and I met up in South London's Kennington Park, just round the corner from where he lives, and we had the best time. Evan currently presents the hugely popular PM programme on BBC Radio 4 and obviously fronts Dragon's Den. But I was really keen to find out a little bit more about off-duty Evan. We chatted about his childhood in Surrey and how his dad's academic career and his mum's job as a psychoanalyst had kind of blended in him to create someone rigorous about facts and detail, but also really curious about people. He also told me about his experience coming out as a gay man and meeting his partner Guillaume, who he clearly adores almost as much as Mr Whippy. Evan was also really honest about why he prefers radio to TV, and having met him, I can see why, as he's really quite a sensitive gentleman who obviously likes connecting with people in a more intimate and formal environment. Evan really struck me as very compassionate and kind and also a massive dog lover. In fact, I'm not going to lie, I was a little jealous of Mr Whippy getting to go back to that nice house with Evan and Guillaume being doted on by these two cultured fabulous men. So I'm just saying, if there's room for a spare one in that dog bed, do bear me in mind. I clean up all my own bathroom breaks too. I really hope you enjoy my chat with Evan and do please listen to his show PM on BBC's Radio 4 every day at 5 o'clock because it's honestly brilliant. I'll hand over to the man himself now. Here's Evan and Mr Whippy. We have to be careful of bikes here. Hello Whippy, we're going to go in a minute babes, just just wait a moment. <laughs> wait Whippy, we're coming Whips, don't worry Whips, we're not going to forget you. Wait, 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 wait. Look at Mr Whippy go. Well, he's, he's a slightly shy dog, if I'm honest, Emily. He, I'd say, slightly prefers human company to, to canine company. Um, and often, at situations like this, he reminds me of the kid in the class who can't quite join in with the other kids who are playing. He sort of... He, um, he runs up and he sort of barks while the others are jostling or wrestling. And then they sort of ignore him sometimes. And that's partly because he's, he prefers to play with the small dogs. And then um, the small dogs often prefer to be with each other. He's a bit big for a small dog. And a, yeah. He's, he's, he's a bit nervous among the bigger dogs. I want you to introduce your dog properly, but I should introduce you first. So let's get Whippy. There you go, Whippy. <laughs> Do I call him Whippy or Mr Whippy? Well, we call him Whippy most of the time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited because I've been wanting to get this man on for so long. I'm with, correct me if I get any of your billing wrong. I will. <laughs> Economist, journalist, presenter, presenter of Dragon's Den and Radio 4's hugely successful PM show. Yeah. Oh, I just want to say, Whippy doesn't like this. He doesn't like this, uh, <laughs> this particular husky. <laughs> Hi, morning. <laughs> Sorry, it's just... Whippy has a particular thing about this husky, and sometimes... Tell me about that, Evan. What happened that there? Is that. No, well, Whippy has a particular thing about that husky. In fact, that husky is a blind husky. 
Rippy's not very um Oh Rippy! I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but he hates that husky and often runs up and barks at him. I don't think he would actually attack him, but he barks at him and the poor blind husky, you know, only has his nose to go on as to who it is that's hassling him, so I'm afraid I do have to uh... <laughs> That's not a very good start, is it? We haven't even got to the end of the introduction and I've had to um, suddenly protect my dog from attacking, from attacking the blind dog. Actually, that husky is lovely. It is a lovely, lovely husky. But they are quite big and need quite a bit of exercise because they're used to casting people like um, David Cameron across Svalbard. And, um... Anyway, so you were, going, oh, yeah. you were doing the introduction. So I, I did the introduction. I'm with Evan Davis. That's, that's, that's the headline news. Right. And I'm with his fabulous dog. Just watch this who he will now introduce. Yes, yeah, so Mr. Whippy, seven-year-old pure whippet, uh, quite a big whippet actually, Emily. He's quite um, on the large side, not, not, not fat, but, uh, but just grew to be quite large. People often think he's a greyhound, but he's way too small for a greyhound. We bought him as a puppy from a, a woman who, I wouldn't call her you know, professional breeder, but she was very much into her whippets and had had, had more than one litter, um, and I think more than one mum, um, out uh, North London, um, near Stansted. And we actually saw him at three weeks. And the story was my partner, Guillaume, had said, I want a blue one. You know how whippets come in the sort of blue-gray. <laughs> so we see that this, this lovely woman up near Stansted has got a a litter coming, or oh, it's just had a litter of, of, a few days old, and we phoned and said, are there any blue ones? And she said, no, no blue ones. So I said, why don't we go and look anyway, Guillaume? We might find. And he was, well, I, we'll go and look, but we're not going to get one if there isn't a blue one. <laughs> so, um, well, when you go and see a litter of, you know, three-week-old whippets, <laughs> the idea that you're not going to buy one on the spot, um, put a deposit on one and then uh, procure it is, is, is for the birds. No, so Whippy was, Whippy was um, the one we picked out of that litter um, and there's a kind of cream, cream white, and we called him Mr Whippy as a working title, but obviously once you've yeah. given the dog a, a provisional name, he becomes that name. I, he has sort of white streaks and we, someone we know said, well, that's the, uh, the whipped ice cream falling on his face. <laughs> so so, um, so we, we like to think there's a meaning to his oh, Mr. cream Whipton. fawn and uh, brown, I suppose you might say, and white. I hadn't realised though, Emily, that there's this, um, I think in some dog circles, a person who works in a dog's home said, we always call a Mr. Whippy. We use that as the name for kind of very soft dog poo. You know, the <laughs> it's, oh, so-and-so's done a Mr. Whippy. He was laughing at the name Mr. Whippy because thought it was... Uh... <laughs> you and Guillaume have called your son shitty. <laughs> that, that is one way, of, one way of describing. Anyway, we didn't know that at the time. We thought of Mr. Whippy as a lovely, tasty, sweet ice cream. Evan, look. <laughs> I think he likes me, he Evan. Does, he does like you. He's very quite... friendly. He probably was slightly sniffing your pockets and just thinking, I wonder if this one has any Well, I, I've got my dog, Ray. I didn't bring him today because he's a Shih Tzu and 
I sort of weigh up the competition and it's like a Tinder thing. I just think it's not going to be a fair match. Now, one, one hazard, and this is not the time of year where we have to worry so much about it, is that Whippy is a dog that likes to chase. If you are a squirrel, um, it can be dangerous to be in this park. We don't encourage him to catch things. We can't oh. stop him chasing squirrels. And very occasionally... <gasps> oh, there he is. He's saying hello to... Uh, I don't know that one. Hello. Morning. Is that a retriever? <laughs> Labrador? Uh, she's a mix. Yeah. A mix? She's beautiful. Very beautiful. What's her <laughs> name? Dochi. Dochi. Oh, Dochi. Lovely. Hello, Dochi. Why, why are you barking, Whippy? Do you know Dochi? Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, he had a little reaction to that one. Yeah, I don't know if that was aggressive or whether that was friendly. It seemed to just be um, attention-seeking to me. I saw that as a sort of lassie, come here, I'm, you know, sort of communica- a communicative bark. Yeah. Timmy's stuck down the well, we better go and get him. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, we could subscribe all sorts of... Um, Dad's, all sorts of Dad's stuck with this weird me. woman, <laughs> we better go and rescue him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to put him on the lead for two ticks. I don't mean to be rude, but what's that Labrador retriever? It's, it's quite on the large side, isn't it? That one, that well, we've all put a few pounds on in lockdown, haven't we, Emily? <laughs> He's looking over at the, uh, looking over at the husky. Um. <laughs> we should say where we are, Evan. Are we allowed to say where we yeah, are? Yeah, we're in Kennington Park. Um, it's, a, it's a medium-sized park. The reason we live in Kennington is for Kennington Park. Uh, it's just very, very convenient for for where we are now, and it's 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 you know, Whippy just never gets tired of strolling around here. He knows every inch. He knows there's a compost heap behind that little sort of pile of stuff over there, and he knows that there's sometimes scraps of food. So if I let him off the lead at this point, he will in fact run up there to take a look. And then we've got the lovely rose garden here. And you and your partner, Evan, you have a place in Normandy as well, don't you? Not in Normandy, actually, no. Um, it's in the Pas de Calais, which is... It's, um, it's the Eau-de-France region, which is really just around the very far north of France. So it's about a 30-minute drive from Calais. Oh, so. lovely. So the, I guess the, um, the question was... My partner's French, obviously, and wanted some connection there, but the great thing about it is that it's dirt cheap there and it's it's if you find a nice place it's very pretty but the most important thing is it's very accessible it's very very you know you can go on a friday night at seven and then have dinner when you get there and you don't need to book a plane and you can take the dog and you can the downside of of northern france compared to most french home buyers is that it's the same climate as here more or less you're not going far away to get a Come on, babes. Come on, let's just come put, on, Whippy. Come on, Whips. Let's just let's not go here. Let's not go here. Let's go somewhere nice. So, Evan, I need to know about your dogs growing up. Did you have dogs or pets? No, actually, it was quite um, sad. We we did have an attempt at a dog, and uh, actually, we tried it twice. And my mum got asthma. Um, it was very slow to come on, um, but she got asthma, and it was the dog. And um, 
So we had to say goodbye to that dog, basically, and give it away, uh, which was heartbreaking. And so we, we basically had to, had to let that dog go. Um, now, you might say it was a bit silly, because actually the same had happened when I was very young, and I don't remember this, that there was a dog and my mum got asthma. And um, so they got rid of that dog. Um, and then many years later, when I was about 13, we got a dog, and my mum really thought, having not had a trace of asthma for the decade before, thought um, that would all have gone and be over. But then very, very slowly the asthma came back, so that was... It just didn't seem like a very good idea to have a dog if it's yeah. giving my mum asthma. So, so we didn't have much experience of dogs. We had a cat. Um, I think the cat was probably quite relieved to see the dog go. <laughs> <laughs> the cat had developed a way of walking around the house without ever touching the ground. Do you know what? I'm going to pick this poo up, partly to impress your listeners with my social good, but partly because there was a scene at the beginning where I think I, I might have... I wasn't sure whether Whippy had done one. Basically, if you think you've missed one, you have to pick someone else's up, you know. It um, means if I missed one, I don't have to feel bad. <laughs> I'll pop this in the spin. Can I just point out, Evan Davis is the first guest who's ever picked up anyone else's poo. <laughs> Ed Miliband didn't do that. Ed Miliband <laughs> said my dog Raymond looked like a toupee. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> now this, this, this is actually an extension to Kennington Park. It's a very flat um, sort of play football crickety area. Yeah. Um, so it's much less manicured. Interestingly, this is Southwark. Ours is Lambeth. This is Southwark. But if we go down there, we can yeah. see a Henry Moore. Did Greg <gasps> Davis take you to the Henry Moore? I bet you he didn't, did he? Evan, jealousy such an ugly emotion. <laughs> tell me about your family, because you... Tell me where you grew up, first of all, right, Evan. I grew up in home counties in Surrey. Sort of school in Dorking, brought up in Ashdead. Near, my parents live in Leatherhead, so it's... Um, Is it a sort of commuter belt? Commuter belt, yeah. Um, my parents actually were both born in South Africa. They both went to university in South Africa. They met at university in South Africa. Um, and they emigrated here when I was a teeny weeny embryo in my mum's tummy. Um, so I was born here, but only just really. Conceived there, born here. And what did your parents do? Um, my father was um, a reader. I don't know, most people don't know what a reader is. It's a kind of one below a professor at the University of Surrey in electronic engineering. And he, he, um, so it's actually, you know, it's a good story because he was there at Surrey in the days that, I don't know if you know, but Surrey University now is the kind of centre of, or one of the centres of the British space industry, satellite industry. It's a very... Um, and that was just taking off when my father was, was there. So yeah. um, there was a guy, he... I think he was his PhD supervisor, Martin Sweeting, who then went on to create one of these brilliant British companies, satellite companies. Um, and uh, so my father was there in the very early days of uh, Surrey's rise to that. And uh, my mum 
was a psychoanalyst, um, Jungian, Jungian analyst. So she, she worked in various child welfare departments and um, places, and then she went into private practice. Yeah, so she's, you know, she, we always had this very lovely, really lovely family dynamic of the kind of the electronic engineer and the Jungian analyst. And I like to think that synthesis of, you know, I'm not going to call it the, the rational and the, um, the kind of emotional, but there's a little bit of that about it. There's a little bit about it, of that about it. Um, yeah, the genes worked out well. Well, I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I love my parents. I think they, they, did, they did bring us up. We're going to go over here to show That's you That's why Moore. you're rigorous and academic, but you're empathetic. That's why it works, you see. Maybe, maybe that is it, if I am those things. <laughs> I strive to be. And tell me about your... You seem very well adjusted, Evan, so I'm assuming that you had a really healthy, sort of happy family life. I think we had a pretty ha family li happy family life. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I count my blessings. My parents um, have been fearsomely loyal to each other you know, since I've known them. And uh, they're still, you know, alive, hanging on, hanging on. And two brothers. And two older brothers, yeah. Were you yeah. close to your brothers? I, I, I think we were close. I, I mean, do we phone each other every day? No, we're not that close in that sort of way. But yes, we're pretty close. We have, we keep in pretty close touch and we all absolutely know how we each think. We all know Sorry, we're walking the wrong way. Actually, we'd sort of go round yeah. this way. We're going Whippy. there. We should have gone out the. Whippy, exit. don't chase the pigeons. No, 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 no. Whip, 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 Whippy. Whip. Best not to eat anything, Whips. No, Whips, because that could be someone had a late night. I think I last think that's night. Is, yeah, that wouldn't stop. Oh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> you are fed actually extremely well, Mr. Whippy, with the poshest bloody dog foods that we can. So, and what? kind of a kid were you Evan were you introverted or shy were you a Mr Whippy I I think I was a little bit so I was never very sporty um and I you know I don't know whether this happened in the girls side but when the boys were taken off for PE and they'd play football and they'd appoint two team captains who would then pick the um pick the teams I was always one of the last two or three you know and normally the captains would then agree with each other you take him and you take him. And I can really spend, I can remember spending large amounts of my school time playing football in which you perfect the art of looking like you're really engaged <laughs> with the game while positioning yourself somewhere where you, there is no chance of you getting the ball. <laughs> it, it, it is quite a thing actually, but it's very funny, you do, get good that 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 was my my child my childhood but i i actually had very happy school days did you very happy and i had um i'm not gonna i was very engaged so it, it, you know my 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 secondary school it was um i became very involved in drama i wasn't very good at it but i that was never a requirement there's the um henry oh, moore should we look at the henry yeah, moore whippy 
So you became involved in drama? Yeah, so, you know, and I had, was very close to one or two teachers in, in, in there, and, and I had a good gang of friends and, um, who were also in drama. Was it so, obvious that you were very academic? Um, no, I, I think I became slightly more academic as the years went on. So by the end of the sixth form, I was one of two or three who were kind of um, Oxbridge-y, getting a bit of extra coaching for Oxbridge entrance exams and the like. But that was a relatively small number. My, my school was quite an interesting one because I went to my secondary school with Dorking Grammar, State Grammar in Dorking. And then while I was there, it combined with a girls' school, secondary modern next door, and half another secondary modern, Archbishop Langton, and the three, two and a half schools came together to form one big school. So I was, I was there as the great Shirley Williams conversion from grammar to comp occurred. It was, I have to say, a quite traumatic time for the school. It was a, I would actually call it a botch. Yeah. I've made a radio documentary about this actually because they, they didn't have the money to kind of remove the fence between the two schools that were next to each other. So the council's idea was that you'd get between the schools by walking out of one and into the other. Fortunately, various of the teachers removed the fence and kind of laid a path. It was, Whippy, that's not No. Good. God, Whippy, you're such a scavenger, babes. You're such a scavenger. It was just very messy. They were basically discovering how to make it work. And it took, yeah. it took two or three years to settle down. Um, it did settle down. And I, I was very happy and, and proud to be part of that school. And I'm still occasionally in touch with them and go back and... They must be really proud of you. Um, I don't know if they... Yeah, they, they, you know, they, they like me and I like them. There's really... <laughs> I'm sorry, but can you just not... I'll tell you what, there's so much chicken discarded in this country. Have you ever come, found that with your dog? There are so many yeah. chicken bones. Whip, come on, put on a good show for this <laughs> nice lady. Come on, Whippy. I've got a theory that I think you're very curious about the world. And then I think it follows that your dog is. It might well be that the dogs detect certain mm. attributes. This is um, beautiful. So this is the Henry Moore. And I absolutely love the fact it's right here in a, you know, big estate of high rises and the like. Um, and I just like the fact it's so mixed around here, you know. It's lovely. It's called two-piece reclining figure number three. So this is 61. Oh my God, I think that's really beautiful, Evan. I love that. I'm always amazed at public art and how you people put expensive things down. <laughs> look at Whippy, look at Whippy. Oh, oh he's got his little paw up. He's thinking, we're going to get a snack now. Want. Good boy. <laughs> oh, Whippy. Do you know what, Evan? I love that this Henry Moore is here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, me too, me too. They haven't put it in Cleaver Square where the yeah. MPs and their, you know, the, 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 the peers live. They put it in in this area, it's just really nice. Um, so yeah, after that, it was Oxford, then Yeah, Harvard. Oxford, and then I got very involved with a guy called... Were you thrilled when you got into Oxford? What was that moment like at home? That was very exciting. Um, it was actually just the week 
of John Lennon being killed, as a matter of fact. I can remember it very well. It was literally around then. That was, was that December, November, December? I'll tell you December? exactly when it was. It was December the 8th, 1980. Right. And I know that because it was my mum's birthday. I think yeah, that's very interesting. Okay. <laughs> so that was the day I think I heard. I might be misremembering that, but I just always inextricably link these two events. Did you realise, OK, this is going to have a huge impact on my life? Um, look, I don't know whether that's the right way of thinking about it. I, I think you're just driven to the next thing you're told you should be able to do, you know, and then you set that as a goal and then you try and get in and you're very pleased when you do. Um, I don't know if I... Yeah, I wouldn't want to overblow it, to be honest. And I also... Um, I think I would have been very happy if I hadn't got into Oxford as well. I just think I probably would have made the best of whatever I had... Uh, I would have yeah. just striven to make the best. I always... I often think there's a sort of view of life in which people think if, if I can do A, I will be happy. Yeah. And it's not that, it's that it, it's, it just works the other way around. So when we were buying a house, I remember saying to Guillaume, you know, you're thinking about, do we like this one? Do we want this one? And what should we do? <laughs> um, and I said to Guillaume, here's the truth. We're both positive thinking people. We're actually, once we buy the house, we're going to say, I'm so glad we bought this one, not the other one. Yeah. That it, it wasn't that we bought this house, so we're happy, we bought the right, yeah. we made the right choice, so we're happy with it. It's that we made a choice and we're happy with it because that's just the way we, we are. and it is absolutely true. And I, we keep laughing about it. We say, I'm so glad we bought this one. <laughs> and I say, yes. And if we bought the other one, we would have been really glad we bought the other one. Like we say, we're so glad we got Mr. Whippy, you know, and we picked him out of the six that we looked at in the litter. But I'm quite sure that we would have liked any of the other ones equally. Yeah. There's nothing special about this dog. That, to me, seems quite a Buddhist approach to life, mm. which is a very present-centred life, isn't it? It's like, this is good for me now. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, it's about seeing the best in, every, in, in, in situations. And the world needs people who are glass half full. And the world needs people who are glass half empty in their mindset. If, we were, if, if the world was only glass half full people, there would be very little <laughs> impetus for change and improvement. On the other hand, if the world is full of glass half empty people who are constantly dissatisfied, um, then it would be a much less happy place. So you, you, you want a kind of a balance. Which are you, Evan? I'm glass half full, totally, always. And what's Guillaume? He's glass half full as well, oh, yeah. You're a pint. Um, <laughs> it works so well. No, well, it, it, it um, I mean, I would rather be a glass half full person. But I do, I do really appreciate what glass half empty people bring, because I think, you know, you need some... I tend not to be a very angry person. Um, I just sort of get on with it. But you do need some angry people to make things change and to... You How know. does your anger manifest itself? Do you... My, my what? Your anger manifests itself. No, I, do, I say I'm not an angry person. I know you're not, but you must feel it sometimes. Oh, well, well, well I've, yeah, of course. And I, it manifests itself in me being irritable, <laughs> mostly with Guillaume. <laughs> just, he gets most of it, you know. But he's lovely about it, you know. We laugh about it. We have protocols for um, dealing with 
Oh God, he just finds that wherever it is, he just finds the little bits of <gasps> discarded food and bone. Is it, you're loving on, having it. That's it, leave it, it's a bone, it's a bone whip. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? He managed to find that bone at about 10 metres, a bit of discarded bone. Come on, come on. So tell me, were you, did you, had you come out by the time you went to university, Evan? No, I had to myself. Coming out has, I think, three stages, to be absolutely honest. There's first to yourself. That's by far the most important. Um, the second is to your parents and the third is to community at large and um, I uh, yeah I sort of basically had been a bit tortured in my early teens by the thought that I might be gay and then I just flipped um, one day and, and realized I was and that there's no point in fighting it and was extremely happy thereafter it was it was literally almost like turning a light switch. It was, you know what, I am, it's fine. And that was that. But I still didn't tell my parents for another decade. Did you not? No, I went to the States for a couple of years after, after undergrad. Is that when you went to Harvard? Yeah, yeah. And um, See, that's very Evan Davis. You say, I went to the States for a couple of years. <laughs> and well, I, most I, people would be sending out a press release if they went to Harvard. <laughs> no, I went to Harvard, but actually, the instrumental bit of my US experience was the summer, mm. summers in fact, I spent in Los Angeles. So I had an internship at a, at a, at the electric utility in LA, oh, Southern yeah. California Edison. And you know what, they, this is the 1980s. Mm. I was working on a cost benefit appraisal of a smart metering system that they were investing in. And um, I mean, they, way ahead of their time. No, no, don't dig. I love them. No. Do you think he knows he's a whipper, Evan? I don't know. No, whipper, don't dig the park. Don't dig. So th this, here we are. You are getting my coming out story. Go to the States. Summers in LA working on this fantastic uh, smart metering system uh, that was ahead of its time. Um, but it was LA where really I just became much more comfortable with being out in front of other people. And I mean, it's so relaxed, LA, and everything was just so accepted and tolerant. And mm. I had a, a boyfriend there, lovely guy called Philip, and his parents were just so easy with it all. It, at that point, when I was gonna get home, it just seemed preposterous, really, to not tell my parents as quickly as possible. I just felt it was keeping something from them. And then they, they were always going to be all right about it. So, mm. um, so no, that was, the, uh, that was the kind of point at which I realised it was okay to be open. And then... And, what, and they were all right about it? Yeah, they were. I don't, you know, say it took a couple of uh, days for them to get over it. They hadn't clocked it. You must have felt... A real relief. Yes, I think it is a relief to tell parents and it is a relief not to have to hide these things, you know. But it's just changed so much. This is really an area where there's yeah. glass half full and glass half empty because I just look and think, my God, when you think back... And look, I don't want to think that the 80s and 90s were some period of hardship. I mean, you know, you could go off with your 
there was gay pride in Kennington Park. I remember coming here in the um, in probably 1990 for a, a gay festival in this very park. Uh, years before I, you know, had any connection to Kennington, and I. So I don't want to pretend that it was all oppression, but when you think of the things that the papers said about gay people, it's just it's just unbelievable, unbelievable now, and. Um, it just seems like the idea, you know, that you would just have equal marriage or it's just, it's extraordinary. And now, I mean, the most interesting thing is the, the rates of LGBT identity that surveys of Generation Z, that's sort of up to early 20s, mid 20s, are just off the scale. So, I mean, the number of gay men is still relatively low and the number of lesbian women is still relatively low. We're talking sort of a couple of percent. Mm. But when you go to that Generation Z, you're talking about higher numbers and you're talking about 15 or 20 percent are saying they're bisexual, you know. Yeah. Now, there's, there are some who are saying, oh, they're not really bisexual, they just want to, want to identify as yeah. because it's very trendy. There are people saying that. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's true. I've, I'm, I don't know, I've not, I've not researched it, but uh, it is still absolutely fascinating that when you basically remove stigma, what happens? And it is going to be absolutely amazing to see how that plays out over the next few decades. And I it's think. interesting as well, isn't it, that idea of it makes me so happy, the idea that there'll be a generation of kids that won't have shame as at the forefront of their sort of adolescent experience, you know? I think it's also interesting, because I, I still wonder, yeah, I just, whether there will still be shame or will there be no shame? Has it all come from social stigma or is some of that in ourselves and our desire to be more normal? Um, to fit with the, uh, what are you getting there, Whip? So Evan, tell me about when, when you realised you had a talent as a presenter, because you went to the BBC, right, not, so not initially as a performer though. No, 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 no. I mean, I went to the BBC as an eco economics um, correspondent on BBC Radio 4. There wasn't a five when I got there. Um, so I was... Um, yeah, I, would, I went in with an economic specialism. That had been my... I'd, I'd basically been working at the Institute for Fiscal Studies for a bit and had, had quite a good career there. But I realised I was not going to be a kind of brilliant academic. Um, I was a little bit too big picture in my view of everything. So I'd, I'd want to get the basic story straight and then... I was a bit useless at follow-up detail and, 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 and rigour. Um, so I had a slightly journalistic approach to it all, and I really thought, you know, I should probably move into journalism. So I got a job as an economist at the BBC, and now that was a break that was a very lucky break. The BBC wanted specialist economists. This is the day of um, Peter Jay and John Burt were... Peter was the editor, the economics editor, John Burt was the DG, and they really felt, we want people to know what they're talking about. We don't want, you know, some bod 
given the job as economics correspondent who doesn't know any economics. So I did, I had the privilege of being appointed as an economics correspondent. And that really meant I kind of leapfrogged over lots of, lots of steps, journalistic steps that others had to go through to get jobs mm. at that level at the BBC. And the advantage of that was, of course, I was, it was a shortcut to a good job at the BBC. The disadvantage was I never really had any understanding of what journalism was <laughs> or what you were meant to do. I mean, I, it, was just, it was just basically um, I had the economics. I'll just keep an eye on Whippy. Hang on. Come on, Whippy. Come on, babes. Come on, babes. Come on, here's a good boy. Here, come on, come on, babe, this way. And then when did you, at what point did you make that transfer? Basically, I was econo- I'd, I'd worked my way up to being economics editor. 2008, um, the editor of the Today programme said, why don't you become a presenter of the Today programme for a bit? And I did a couple of weeks, just over a summer. And then he said, why don't you... Um, come and work at the Today programme and I said well I might I wouldn't mind doing it for a little bit as a change but I would obviously never want to do that permanently because I didn't think of myself as a presenter and then he said okay do it for a year and then when they announced it they didn't say it was for a year and I said Kerry the press release hasn't mentioned that it's only for a year it just says like I'm going to be a Today presenter and honestly I was so naive I just can't believe it he said, oh, does it not say? <laughs> and uh, they'd basically made up their mind. I was no longer fit to be economics editor and I was, <laughs> it was time to move over. So no, I did that. I just, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, it was never a plan. I've just done what the BBC it's... asked me to do, really. Have you? You know, they, 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 they wanted me to do that. I didn't argue. Um, so when, they, when Newsnight came up, yeah, that's an interesting one. So I agonised over that quite a bit. Paxman left and then they needed a new lead presenter. And so this is, this is an interesting story because essentially their feeling was we're not going to get another Paxman who is as good as Paxman. So we should swing over to the opposite. We should go for something that is a very different style. And I was associated with being kind of the friendly, not, not terribly adversarial or argumentative. So they, they did give me that job. I, I, I agonised over it. And, and Tony Hall said to me, um, I think you'll bring a warmth to it, which, which will be useful. So I did go. And I don't, I, I, I stayed there for what, four, four years. It was not the most successful piece of my career, in all honesty. I don't think it was car crash bad. Um, <laughs> I would never say that. But I actually think the culture of that programme was quite geared towards mm. adversarial takes on things. And so I think I was never quite, I was never quite in willfully non-adversarial enough mm. to make that work but I certainly wasn't adversarial enough to make that work either so I think I was falling between the two plus I think I, I think I actually don't quite have the face for um for tv I mean I, I think it's I think I just I think I looked a bit swamped in that studio and I 
I think in retrospect, I probably should have said, if I'm going to do this job, we just need to make the studio work, mm. you know, with my small head and, and, and the chair's too big and it just the desk is too big and the lighting is wrong. I, I should probably have insisted on something. Um, it's not that you were not right, it's that well, it had to be right for you. Well, you know. it, it just, I, you know, the culture of it, it was a lot more than I could do to kind of make that work. I, 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 I think the habit of adversarial interviewing was very deeply, is very deeply ingrained. And actually, what's interesting is, I think when I went to a programme that's in the kind of great pantheon of BBC programmes, PM, I think it has much less, a much less, it had a very strong Eddie Mayer tradition. Mm. Eddie was less adversarial. I mean, Eddie had a, was the most interesting presenter, really, in, in, in radio. And he, he had a whole lot of um, very, very interesting ways of engaging with the audience, dealing with interviewees and the like. Massive warmth sometimes. Could be very, 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 very um, sharp and attacking when he, when he wanted to be. Um, but I think it was much easier for me to just come to PM, do it the way I wanted to do it, Whippy is now about 60 <laughs> metres away. Whippy, come on. Whip. Bye. Bye, Whippy. I have to do bye. That's the thing that makes him come. Bye. Bye, Whippy. It's not working. <laughs> he's like, that. you know what? I'll take my chances, Dad. <laughs> I don't believe he's going anywhere. <laughs> bye. Bye. He's smelling something and he's like, I'll, I'll keep an eye for the moment. <laughs> but it is true. He will, he will absolutely, he will not, he will not lose me. As long as he knows where I am. Here he is, I said he'd come and he did. Good boy. Good boy. So, and PM were the show so that I you think do. it's been much easier to shape PM to what I think fits me most yeah. naturally. And there hasn't been a kind of, um, a strong culture in there. Of, of, and there's not a lot of direct, there's not been the same level of direction as to what each interview is about. That um, I think it's just been easier to make it work. Hello. And I'm much happier with it. Oh, he's trying to give him a French kiss, isn't he? Whippy's <laughs> kissing you. It's 11 months. Oh, no, it's 10 months. Is oh, he a okay. ter terrier? Uh, he's a mix of a jockey. Oh, is he fully grown now? And it probably is then if he's 11 months. Fully grown now? Lots of puppy-like enthusiasm for little, making friends. He was a little fatter before. He's losing weight now. Nice to meet you. Good to see you. What do you think of little dogs, Evan? Um, I don't mind little dogs. I, 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 I think it's useful to have a dog that you can pick up. Mm. And I can pick up Whippy, but he's 20 kilos, <laughs> and I can imagine there'll be a point in my life where I won't be able to pick him up. So... Um, <laughs> No, I don't mind little dogs. Don't mind them. They can be a bit yappy sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's something one can control. I think they are just always keen to make themselves heard. Well, my dog isn't, but then that's because I was very adamant. As soon as he came home, he went, oh! I said, no, we don't do that. And he never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to believe it was 
there was a causal <laughs> link between those two things, but I, I don't believe it. <laughs> so with PM, Evan, I love PM, and I think it feels like rather than the headmaster telling me the news, it's like I'm having dinner with a really well-informed, nice friend. Well, that's the nicest thing you could say, because that is... Uh, uh, I have always said, and Awena, who was the editor then and who appointed me, who's now actually editor of today, Awena says, Awena and I agreed we wanted the programme to sound warm and curious. So when you're doing an interview with a politician, for example, actually we don't do that many big political interviews, you don't have to. I, I, I think it's great for some programmes to start from the premise why is this lying bastard lying to me and to try and uncover that I'm, I'm, I'm not against those kinds of interviews I don't want every interview to be like that um, so on PM what I will normally do is not start from that approach but would start from a kind of why is this person thinking what they're thinking you know and it's just a very it just turns out to be quite quite different really and um, so I I I think there's room for all these kinds of interviews. Some, sometimes people have tried to set me up as kind of anti-Paxman or anti-John Humphreys in approach. But I, actually, I'm not against, you know, those kinds of interviews at all. I mean, I think they're, I think they're, I think there's a, they have their advantages and their disadvantages. And the advantages, they're often very entertaining and engaging. And there's also an advantage that they often, he's going to sit down and scratch himself, watch. Oh, no, he's not. He's going to... Oh, yes, that's good, isn't it, Whips? Now shake. There we go. Lovely. Oh, yes, Whips. That's nice. And you're... Oh. Do you prefer radio, Evan, yeah, yeah, to TV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think audiences don't understand the degree of artifice in television of sitting with an earpiece in your ear and looking at a camera... You're not looking at a person. Um, it's just very much harder to be spontaneous and you can't look at your notes as much in TV. And when you're reading a script, you can't go off piece because you're reading it from an auto cue. And if you go off script, the auto cue person doesn't know what to do. So you have to stick to the script, roughly speaking. Mm. And so... I, it's just basically what I like about radio is the if you think of the production to content ratio in radio it's much much lower there's much less production and much more content and in TV there's it's an awful lot of standing around getting made up going into the studio having the person put the earpiece on and fix the microphone and radio it's just bolt into the studio. I think actually recorded TV interviews were always much easier because there was less time pressure. You weren't set up with earpieces and stuff and, and people counting into your ear. And so the recorded interviews were always the ones that I felt more satisfied with and always felt were the better ones on TV. You never liked doing live TV, did you? I'm not a big... I mean, I think, I think it, it's tiny bit terrifying and everybody can see oh whoa 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 whippy do you want to go off the lead 
lot of dog. Yeah, you were saying it's a live thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I just basically have stage fright, really, to, to some Do degree. You? Mm -hmm. And it's much, I don't on radio, but I do on TV. I was going to say, it feels like you're in a really happy place with Yeah, your it's work, a very, very, it's a really great team. It's a very, um, I think I'm very content with what the programme is. And I, um, I mean, I think it has found a, a role. I don't know if you know that World at One and PM are the same team. Mm. So Sarah Montague, who is the World at One presenter, you should talk to her. She's got a dog as well, actually. Um, if we try to avoid that big muddy puddle. Um, Sarah and I get on well. And, you know, it's just, it's a very... But I can't imagine you not getting on with anyone. Well, actually, no, I've not, I'm not, I've not, not got on with people. Do you see uh, those two dogs? And they're fighting. And there's just one in the background. He's just skipping around with the grass. That's what you are. Because I think you're... Quite a gentle soul, you strike me as. And I think I'm actually, I, I, mean, I don't want to get too sort of deeply psycho about it. I think I'm actually slightly shy. And I think I'm actually very unassertive. And I think that <laughs> is true of everybody in my family. So I never, you know, so if we're getting bad service somewhere, <laughs> Guillaume is like, I'm going to talk to the manager. And I'm, I'm, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll just, I'll eat it anyway, or it's cold, or I don't mind. I like it cold. You know, that, that is my style. Guillaume is exactly the opposite. And, um, and I don't want to make a fuss, and I don't want to be, see, ooh, whippy. <laughs> Sorry. Well, look, I actually do think conflict de-escalation is if I had another life, I would try and be in the world of conflict de-escalation. It's by far the most important thing human beings need to discover is how to manage conflict, how to reduce it. Are you usually the first to say sorry if you have a row with Guillaume? I think Guillaume would probably not say that I was the first, but we <laughs> honestly, we normally end up joking about it. We really do have conflict protocols that involved taking the piss out of ourselves. Um, will you tell me how you met Guillaume? I, I love the sound of your relationship. It sounds like you're really well suited. We're very, very well suited. Um, we met in a CD bar uh, in 2002. <laughs> I, I could tell you the story, but I would have to then request you not to broadcast it. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. He came back. We spent the night together. Then he, um, the next day, I don't know what, we were just pottering around in the morning. And then it was the Body World ex 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 exhibition was on near Brick Lane. And Body Worlds, do you remember this one with all the plastified real bodies? There's this German guy who's got this weird way of presenting um, real human and animal um, bodies um, in, in a sort of plastified, preserved way. And I'd, I said, "That's I've quite been a first date." I, I want to. I've been meaning to see this, and he said, "Oh, I want to go and see that as well." <laughs> so he went, <laughs> saw that, and that was more or less it. And you thought, "He's the one." Yeah. And you got? Are you married? 
We are civilly partnered. We got civilly partnered on the 10th anniversary of meeting and our ambition is to upgrade on the 10th anniversary of the civil partnership. So that would be... So we just, we thought it would be convenient to keep the dates the same. Yeah. So there wasn't, you know, a confusion of which the anniversary date was, you know, so. So we're trying to do it on the 20th, which will be July next year. Why do, why do the media get so obsessed by your clothes, Evan? I don't know. Are they really obsessed by my clothes? There's only been one photo in the mail where they said, please, Mr. Davis, won't you dress more age appropriately? Or I can't remember what, the, what it was. No, I tell you, it said, please, Mr. Davis, won't you wear a tie? <laughs> Something. Oh, well, there's been a bit of that. So what it really is, Emily, is, is, is let's have an item about ties. And a good way of <laughs> doing that is to say, why isn't he wearing a tie? I mean, that's just the nature of our journalistic yeah. tradition. And I think that's a perfectly good way of doing it so I mean I didn't wear a tie on Newsnight because I was trying to make the program more informal warmer and less yeah. kind of you, you know less kind of rigid Ellen do you um do you cry a lot um I do cry from time to time you're you're harking to an interview I did no. With a colleague. I, I think asked it was everyone a that. Do you? Yeah. Because someone asked me that in an interview. Did once. they? I think it was a Times person. She said, what makes you cry? And I described it and then it started crying. I just Because as soon as I think about it, 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 it um, makes me cry. Evan, I don't want to make you cry. I'm sorry <laughs> no, I brought no, it no, up. No, no, you're welcome to bring it up. Here's the problem in my job, Emily. Often we do emotional interviews. Yeah. This literally happened on Newsnight. So you're doing an emotional interview and the producers will be thinking it would be good if the person cried at this point. <laughs> I am hopeless at those interviews because I always cry before the person <laughs> who they want to get cry. I mean, I'm just... So I, I, I'm a bit terrified of those. I think sometimes I cry instead of expressing anger a lot of the time, I think. You know, I'm not I've in that category. I, I can tell you what makes me cry is people trying to maintain dignity in the face of adversity. And I, I'm, I'm, I, I won't think of examples because as soon as I think of examples, I do cry. Oh, Evan. But, um, That's a really lovely reason to cry. I cry because I get a parking ticket. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> I never cry. <laughs> I feel like... I know people normally say this to roman potential romantic partners and I appreciate that's off the table with us, but... I feel like you make me want to be a slightly better person. <laughs> no, that's very sweet of you to say. I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not sure I've said anything that merits that. But, 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 but you know, that's, that's lovely. Oh, Whippy! It is little innocent face. He's actually ready to go home now. I've loved he's... meeting your daddy. <laughs> he's such a lovely daddy. <laughs> and he's got his smart coat. What are you going to do today, Whippy? Oh, I don't know. I think I might have a snooze. <laughs> After lunch. <laughs> What's lovely about him is he's so jealous. If, if, if Guillaume and I, um, if I come in and we kind of hug each other or something like that, he just yelps and yelps and yelps. And so we have to go down, bend down, stroke him, and then his tail wags. He just loves the kind of three-way. We're living in a thruple, aren't we, Mr. Whippy? And do you do this every Well, weekend? I tend to bring you in the mornings. Guillaume works at home, and so, um, you know, even 
when we're not in lockdown worked at home um, so uh, he takes him in the day so he gets two walks a day you know we think he needs at least an hour a day an hour two 45 minute walks is about right you know two 45 minute walks oh Evan is that are we spoiling him or depriving him <laughs> <laughs> I don't know do you find people saying, I don't have children? I always say, I forgot to have children. And people often say to me, oh, is your dog a child substitute? And I said that to my therapist, and he said, yeah, probably is, but that's all right. Well, I've got, I mean, I, the dog isn't the child substitute. The, the children are the dog substitute. <laughs> <laughs> of course they are. We have an absolute nurturing instinct. And, but my affection for that dog is clearly as evolved. I mean, it's not as strong as a mother's affection for her child. I'm not in any way comparing uh, it. However, my, my, affe- <laughs> <laughs> my affection for this dog is a clearly evolved thing. It is, I love that dog. I don't mind the smell of his poo and I don't mind picking it up. It's a, it is absolutely a deeply, deeply ingrained, instinctive relationship. It's an arbitrary one because we picked him up and as soon as we had him, we loved him and he loved us and we just get the oxytocin rush. Each of us, he gets it, we get it, every time we gaze into each other's eyes. It is an extraordinarily strong bond, and I, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think it's for everybody to have a dog, but um, I wish more people could. It gets people out of the house, it gets them walking, it's, yeah, you know, what, what more do you need in, in life than a little? <laughs> Let's just look at his ears. You just look, you know we're talking about you, don't we? You know His that, ears are flapping, they're literally flapping. Do you know that? We're talking about you and how beautiful you are. Did you know that? <laughs> I've loved meeting you, Mr Whippy. Daddy's going to take you home now. I'm going to take you home. Oh, oh, Evan, I've loved meeting you. No, it's been an absolute like... pleasure. Thanks, Emily, for, for, for strolling around Kennington Park with me. It's been lovely. And Mr Whippy. Bye, Mr Whippy. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.